Hey, welcome to everyone who's joining us on the podcast. Welcome. <laughs> we are in the middle of a series called D Church. And we are looking at the book, the first part of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And we're looking at a bunch of letters that Jesus writes to seven different churches. And uh, we're right in the middle. Um, and we're looking at today Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. Okay, Pergamum. Now, let me, let me tell you, give you a little bit of context about Pergamum. Okay, Pergamum was a beautiful city. Okay, it, is, it was a capital city. Now, the things that stood out about Pergamum was that it had one of the greatest libraries of the time. Now, the greatest library in the ancient world was the library in what city? Alexandria. Wow. What high school did you go to, mate? Very smart. <laughs> but the second greatest library was in Pergamum. They say it held about 200,000 books. Now, if you're talking about books, right, you know, there's probably about 200,000 books in Chatswood Library, but you've got to remember this is ancient, and, you know, they're handwritten books. Not only was this city a, a magnificent city for literature and culture, but it had magnificent temples and huge structures. I think there's some photos up. I, I think there are some photos up. So this is, this is, this is uh, what uh, Pergamum would have looked like. Now, this is obviously run down, but there was an, a, a theater there, a massive theater. They say something like 20,000 people uh, could have sat there. Um, if Hillsong had their conference, that's where they would have had it in Pergamum. Um, then there was the, I think it's the library. Oh, this is some of the, the, the temple, obviously, poor quality of the photo. And then this is what they say was looked like the library. Now, you, now you go, oh, wow, that's not bad. Now, you've got to remember, this is 2,000 years ago. This is not modern-day construction. This is, this is magnificent. This place was... Um, not just known for its culture, but it was also known for its worship and, and its temples. And so they had, they had temples to all the, the gods, the, the Roman gods, the Zeuses and the Athenas. But what this place is known for is it's the first place where they created temples to worship Rome. So to worship Caesar. And that's why this city, Pergamum, is known as the religious capital of Rome. Now, as we've been going through these letters every week, um, there's a structure, right? There are four things that every of these letters have. Firstly, the description of the one who's writing the letter, Jesus. Secondly, there is a commendation to the church, like these are things you're doing well. And then there are things that the church is not doing well. And then at the end, Jesus finishes with a promise. And so we're going to run the same structure and show you what Jesus is writing to the church in Pergamum. So, firstly, the Lord's self-designation. This is in verse 12 of Revelation 2. Let me read. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Okay? Now, this is a double-edged sword. For those that are visual, that you can't, you, your creativity doesn't go far. Okay? This is what a double-edged sword is. Now, I didn't know this. I just thought that was a sword, okay? But it made sense because both sides are sharp. So that makes it a double-edged sword. 
Now, if only one side was sharp and the other side was flat, that would be a what? A single-edged sword, okay? So the knives that you have at home are single-edged knives. Did you know that? Is this mind-blowing? I understand. When I work this out, it just changed my life, okay? I have single-edged knives in my house. This is a double-edged sword. But what we need to understand is not just the fact that Jesus is the one who has the words, uh, Jesus is the one who has the, the sharp double-edged sword, but it's what the sharp double-edged sword symbolizes. And in Hebrews 4.12, this is what it says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The double-edged sword actually symbolizes the word of God. Okay, the word of God. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's writing this letter. I'm the one who has this sharp double-edged sword coming from my mouth. Okay, now this is going to become important later. Okay, you just need to remember that. Okay, so let's move to the second part, commendation. Okay, what the church is doing well. Verse 13, I know where you live. And I know that sounds a little bit creepy, but I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, once again, we see this personal touch. This is a personal letter that Jesus is writing to the church. And he says, I know where you live. I know your situation. I know your context. And he understands the context of the, the believers in the church at Pergamum. And he describes that as, this is where Satan has his throne. This is where Satan lives. The worship of all things outside of God. Jesus knows this about that city. He knows it's a, it's a, a tough place to be living. And yet, and yet... The church remains true to his name. You did not renounce your faith, meaning that when you didn't leave the faith, even though all of these things are happening around you, even though it got hard in the city, and it even says, even when Antipas was put to death. This is Jesus' encouragement to the church in Pergamum saying, Man, it got, it, it's a really hard place for you to live. And people are dying because of their faith in me. And yet you stood strong. I know that. You remain true. What, what, what a commendation that is. What a, what a praise that is for the church. That would be something that would be amazing if he wrote that to our church at the chapel. You know, live in this you know, I don't know if Satan lives in Chatswood, but there's parts of Chatswood that he lives in, I think. Um, you know, like, but you remain faithful. You know, that would be so nice. You know, it, it, you know, in marriage, right, that'd be nice too, right? Like, you remain faithful. Well done to the church in Pergamum. But the third part, the condemnation and warning, verse 14 to 16 Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrifices to idols and committed sexual immorality. 
Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, I go back to 14. I, it's a really interesting verse. And Jesus says, nevertheless, right? Nevertheless, even though there's so many good things, there are still some things that, you know, you're not doing right. And it says this, there are some among you who hold to the teaching. Now, I, I, this really changed the way that I thought about the letters and the way that Jesus speaks to the churches. Now, I always thought, look, the whole church is doing well and the whole church is doing bad. Right? The whole church is doing good things, and the whole church is also struggling as well. But Jesus actually says, there are some among you. There are some among you, which is showing us that the church as a whole, generally, they were doing really well, remaining faithful and true. But it was just the sum. And I love that Jesus knows this. I love that Jesus is not just going to slam the whole church, but he's just recognizing that, look, not all parts of the church are healthy. And so what he's saying is um, some of them have, uh, most of them have remained faithful, but some have not. And then he goes to tell them what they have done wrong. And he says they're holding to the teachings of Balaam. And in verse 15, we say that there are, some of them are holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans are already mentioned in the letter that Jesus writes to the, to the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus were praised because they, did, they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And so now we see in Pergamon, some of them are actually holding on to not just the deeds of these uh, pagans, but they're holding on to the teachings, and that's not a good thing. Now, let me explain what these teachings are without going into too much complicated death, right? Who is Balaam and who is Balak? Okay? Now, if you want to know the whole story, Old Testament, Numbers chapter 22 to 25, but I'll just give you the important parts. Balak was the son of the king of the Moabites. Okay, I know, half of you just went, oh, okay. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, let's start there. Anyway, God's got his people, the Israelites, and everyone who's not an Israelite is an enemy of God. And there's this one group called the Moabites, and the king of the Moabites has a son called Balak, and they're coming towards, the Israelites are coming towards his country, the Moabites, Moab, and he gets worried. And so what he does is he hires this guy called Balaam. Now, who's Balaam, right? Balaam is a spiritual, somewhat prophet or a sorcerer. He's a spiritual guy, but he's not an Israelite. Uh, when you read the story, it's a little bit confusing, but just, just stick with me, okay? And what, what Balak was telling Balaam to do was, hey, curse the Israelites so that they don't take over our country. Curse them, right? So that they get sick, curse them so that they die. But Balaam can't do that. He can't directly curse God's people. So what he tells the Moabites to do is, hey, I, I can't curse them directly. I can't stop them directly. But take the young women and send them in to the Israelites and tell them to hang out with the boys of Israel. And then what happened was the young women of the enemy got sent in and so they all start hanging out because all the Israelite young men are like, oh, wow, there's, there's all these young women around. 
So they all start hanging out. They all start uh, intertwining. Use your imagination, intertwining, right? But what happens is, as they start these relationships, the enemy, these, these, these young women, they start to bring in their religion, right? And they start saying to the young men, hey, look, you can go and worship God. That's fine. You know, go to church on Sunday, but Monday, come to temple with me. You can go and worship God. I'm not telling you not to worship God, but you can do that and then come and hang out with me at temple. And all the Israelite men were like, well, you know, guys that are probably not thinking straight. are like, oh, okay, that's, that's pretty good. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not compromising. I'm still worshiping God. I'm still, you know, serving Him. But, you know, church on Sunday and temple on Tuesday. You know, like, you know, and so what, they, what started to happen is they started to mix and integrate different belief system, thinking that it was okay. And then what happened was, then they, when the, the scripture says, they then started to compromise their truth by eating uh, food that was sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality, right? So at the beginning, it was just like, let's hang out. It's okay, you can believe what you want to believe, but you know, you just hang out with me. And then it started to, Overlap, 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 and then the young men of Israel start to cross the line. And the rest of the story is like 300,000 of them get killed. Now, once again, Jesus tells them in verse 16, repent. Now, I said this a while ago, but I'll say it again. Repent isn't some super spiritual word. It just means turn away, turn back, 180 degree, turn back to God. Because Jesus is going to go into battle against the enemy with the sword of his mouth, the word of God, which is true. Now, once again, it wasn't the whole church. It was just a part of the church. Okay? And finally, the, the promise, verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And Jesus, so Jesus ends up ends the letter to uh, Pergamum with this promise. Hey, you, the one that will be victorious at the end, you, the one that will be standing at the end, I will promise you two things, hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. What's manna? Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, you guys, uh, I don't know, Prince of Egypt, you know, let my people go, you know, and so the, God's people are walking around the desert and they're stuck complaining, God, you know, there's, there's no food in the desert. And so what God chooses to do is he gives them food. And the way he does it is they wake up in the morning and on the grass, like dew, uh, like the water on the grass, every morning there would be this thing called manna. Now, it, they say it looks sort of like um, like little seeds. And so you'd wake up, you'd go out, you'd collect enough manna, and then you would grind it, and then you could make uh, bread out of it, and that's what you would eat. Now, what manna represents is God's provision. God's provision. What Jesus is saying is, for you that remains faithful to me, the one that is victorious, I will continue to provide for you, even though you don't do anything. I will continue to provide for you. You just have to trust me. And secondly, the, the, the thing that Jesus promises is the white stone. Now, what's the white stone, right? So back in the Old Testament, uh, they would use stones 
uh, in court cases sometimes, right? When it wasn't as clear-cut as, you know, this person is guilty or innocent, okay? They would allow, they would allow um, lots or they would allow the gods to decide whether the person was innocent or not and they would have a, a, a white rock and a, and a black rock in, the, in a bag and then the person would pick up the rock and if the, the, if the rock was white, then they would be proclaimed innocent and if the, the rock was black, then, then you'd be killed. And so, you know, it's like rolling the dice, right? But, but they, they believed that it wasn't luck. They believed that it was the will of the gods. No chance, right? Like, you just pick whatever God said. And then, so if you got black, it's like, well, obviously you're guilty. And so when Jesus says that, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give that person a white stone, right? It's a pronouncement of innocence. But the beauty is, it's not just a stone, a random stone, but it's a stone with a new name written on it, that you have a new identity through Jesus. This is what Jesus promises to those that stick by him till the end. And that's the letter to the church in Pergamon. Now, as I said, one of the things that we need to do as we read these letters is we need to understand that firstly, that, that letter wasn't for us directly. Okay, That letter was for the church in Pergamon. But the question is, well, what's that got to do with today? What's that got to do with us today? And I want to start with this question. What is the greatest threat and challenge to the church today? Is it temple worship? Is it persecution? Is it, you know, poverty? What is the greatest challenge to the church today? You know, people would say it's finance. It's about gathering people. It's about being relevant having good music, keeping up with technology. But actually, they're all, they are threats, but the greatest threat to the local church, the greatest threat to Christianity today is actually the question of truth. What is truth? What is real truth? Now, we are what they call, we are in a postmodern society. And postmodern, uh, postmodernism says, and you would have heard this somewhere along the way, some of you might even believe this, is there is no such thing as one absolute truth. But we live in a society where everyone's truth is truth to that person. So what I believe is truth to me, what Albert believes is truth to him, what Steve believes is truth to him, and we can all coexist as long as we don't touch each other because there is no absolute truth. That's a society we live in. That's wrong. Now, from now to the end of my sermon, I'm going to probably say a few things that might upset some of you, and feel free to email me. I will check it one day. And I will get back to you, and we can have a talk about it. Okay? As Christians, we believe that there is an absolute truth, and we call this truth the Word of God. You know, when, I've been, when I'm preaching, the reason why I preach with so much conviction, right, is not because this is my opinion. I'm not that smart. I'm not that well experienced. Uh, trust me, you don't want to take advice from me about how you should be living your life 
and what you should be doing in eternity. You don't want that. The only reason why I can speak what I speak is because I have behind me the Word of God, which I believe is the truth, the absolute truth. I really believe that it is the Word of God. See, the teachings of Baalism, uh, Balaamism, right, which is what we talked about. One of the things is a lot of people will say, you can believe in the Christian God. You can believe and accept the Bible. And you can believe and accept other teachings in this world. And what that is an example of is Balaamism. Is where you can have God. And you can have the world. Now, uh, from my understanding of Hinduism, it's very similar. They have their set of teachings, but they're also, if you, you can believe in Jesus. So, so a lot of Hindus believe in Jesus. Um, the religion of Baha'i, they just accept everything. It doesn't matter what you believe, that's okay. That's, that's for you. you can, we can accept that. But but in Christianity, we don't accept that. And it's not because we're being, being exclusive. It's because we're saying that there is absolute truth. Sadly, what's happened in the church, even in the church, and we're not even talking about outside the church, even in the church, we have a lot of people that have some, somehow sort of meshed these messages together. Now, the problem is twofold. Okay, The problem with this idea of uh, believing that the Bible is the absolute truth and also believing that you, know, you can live in the world and, 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 and be okay, is, is the first one is this, our view of the truth and our defense of the truth. When someone says, or when someone questions, hey, I don't know if the Bible is actually the word of God. I don't know what you believe is actually the truth. Actually, what's, what's really tough is our defense of it is actually really poor. And we have a very low bar of defense. So when someone comes in, most people can, they can argue against what we would say is a defense. And so then what happens is, it's just shaky. You know, the people are like, oh, yes, I'm, I, I'm, I'm convicted of this to be the absolute truth. And someone, someone comes in with an idea and suddenly, oh, yeah, actually, I don't know. Well, how can something that you're not sure about be the absolute truth? And so they, 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 they can question it. But the second problem is that this so-called truth, uh, so-called other ideas, we just allow them to exist. And what we say is, well, you know, we might not believe in the same thing, but it's okay. You can believe in what you believe in, and I'll just believe in what I believe in. And, and, and that's going to become a problem. Because at the end, it's going to blend. Now, I want to introduce a word to you. Uh, the word is heresy. Now, heresy, as much as uh, if you've been going to church for a while, you might think it's, it's, it's a really negative word, but it's actually not. Heresy, uh, before that definition, comes from the Greek word, which means to choose. Heresy just means to choose. Now, the modern-day definition of it is this definition, belief or opinion contrary to orthodox religious doctrine. Okay, so pretty much what we would say is for Christians, 
Anything that is outside of the Bible, we would call that heresy. And it's just saying that other people are choosing to believe in things outside of the Bible. That's all it is. That's, that's all the word heresy is. It's to make a choice outside of the Bible. Now, as I said, I'm going to introduce to you some of the most common modern day heresies. I didn't make these up. I'd be a genie if I made these up, but I literally typed it into Google and I, and I wrote, what are the top heresies in modern day churches today? Okay? Okay? All really, okay, now, before, I, before you start reading this, okay, I'm telling you this right now, and you can send me an email, you can give me death stares, you can walk out quietly, you know, like, that's fine, you know, like, we'll hang out, we can still be friends, we don't have to believe the same thing, okay, but I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm telling you this right now, these are wrong. This is not like, oh, you can have an opinion, and you know, Christians can believe this and still, no, no, if you believe in any of this, you cannot be a Christian, Okay? And I've kept these heresies to just what we call closed-handed issues, okay? Which is like, look, if you, if you, if you kind of like are tinkering with some of this stuff, that's outside of Christianity, okay? I still love you. I still respect your opinion, okay? We can still hang out. You know, we can go have, you know, what's the, what's the, the, the malatang noodles? You know, like everyone's talking about the malatang noodles. I've never had malatang noodles, but supposedly they're fantastic, right? We can still do that, but I'm just telling you that this is not from the Bible. Okay, here we go. There's five of them. All religions are the same. They all lead to God. Wrong. Okay, I'm not even going to, I had biblical proof text and I thought, now this is going to get way too long. I'm just going to tell you it's wrong. Okay, good people go to heaven. Okay, good deeds. If you do good things, then God will accept you into heaven. Wrong. Wrong. Okay, Jesus wasn't really a God. He was just a good spiritual guy. Or the other flip side, Jesus wasn't really a human. You know, the whole idea of he came to earth, he just appeared like a human. Wrong. He was fully God, fully man. Okay? Number four, Christians will be healthy and wealthy. Wrong. Look at my bank account. <laughs> and more importantly, look at my physique. Okay? I wish that one was true. That's, that's a common one. And you know what's sad about that one? That one doesn't even come from outside the church. That one comes from inside the church. Christians will be healthy and wealthy. I am living proof that is not the case. And the last one, don't take the Bible too literally. It's a helpful book, but has no authority. Wrong. We believe the Bible is the word of God. And it has all authority as if God had given it to us himself in word form. That is where the Bible stands. Now, I could talk about homosexuality. I could talk about abortion. I could talk about interracial couples. Right? And I chose not to. Okay? I'm just going to stay with the main, main stuff to minimize the emails that come to my account, okay? Now, there are so many heresies, right? And a lot of them are just purely cultural. There are people in my old church, my old, old church, they really believe that you shouldn't spend money on Sunday. You know, my, my dad used to believe that, and so, like, if our petrol, if, if our car was, like, lacking in petrol, he'd be really worried on Sunday, like, how are we going to go to church and back because we can't spend money you know, and this is sort of back in the cash days, right? 
And then, you know, and then we started using cards and, and like he had no problem with spending our card because he, you know? <laughs> All right, people in my old church, you, you cannot come to church in shorts. You know, like you cannot preach in shorts. There are some people that believe that you cannot play golf on a Sunday. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong with a passion. Love playing golf on a Sunday. They're all heresy because they're all not from the Bible. Okay? Now, I'm going to start to wrap this up. We need to understand that to do with these heresies as Christians, as believers today, we can have one of two attitudes towards these. Okay? The first one is this. We can simply just allow it. And what's bad about this one is that this one exists a lot. We just allow it. You know, we just go, oh, you know, that's what they think. And, you know, it's very different to what I think. But that's okay because, you know, they're not mature and, you know, they're new to the church and whatnot. But you know what? That, that's scary because the longer you hang out with people that have different ideologies and we think that we're smarter, we think that we're wiser, that we're not going to... Be, uh, we're not going to be influenced by them. But I'm going to tell you, the reality is you hang out with different people with those kind of ideologies. You will, it's not a matter of if you will go over, it's a matter of when you will go over. See, it, 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 the whole idea of Balak and Balaam, it wasn't the enemy saying don't believe in God. It was like, look, you can have God, but you can have everything else as well. It's like when the Bible says, uh, it's like saying that you can have the Bible, but you can have the world as well. And, and for, in the church, that heresy exists a lot. And I would say that even exists in our community too. That you can be a Christian, that you can have one foot in, 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 in God's camp, and you can have one foot in the world. And, and you know what? The Bible clearly says you can't have that. You can't. 1 John 2, 15 and 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, and whoever does the, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. One of the examples of this is the idea of consumerism. The, the, the idea of consumerism is that happiness... Happiness comes from the more stuff you have. So I'm at an age now, and, and I have a lot of friends that, that aren't Christian, or some of them are Christian, supposedly, where their lives are not about God. Their lives are about their stuff. So the stuff that they buy, we're talking some expensive stuff. We're talking like a portfolio of properties now. And you know, like, I, I, I hang out with them. I, I love them. I, I love hanging out with them and their kids and whatnot. But, you know, they... The more I hang out with them, the more that sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe it's okay, you know, to invest all my money in, you know, Bitcoin or, you know, like, you know, like, but it's this, it's this idea that you might not think that it affects you, but it affects you if you just allow it, if you don't deal with the heresy then and there. Now, I said, there's nothing wrong with houses. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with houses. There's nothing wrong with money. 
There's nothing wrong with pursuing a career. But the Bible teaches that our relationship with God should be front and center, should be the priority, not other things. But some of us have allowed these heresies to exist around us, and some of us, those heresies have become a part of us. And so we spend our times trying to justify against what the Bible says. It can be dangerous. But the second attitude that we can have towards heresy is to actively defend it. Actively defend ourselves. And the best defense is what? Offense. This is so simple, but the best thing to do to actively defend ourselves against heresy is really simple. It's with the sword. It's with the Bible. See, as you live your life, you will be thrown more and more ideologies, more and more concepts of, hey, this is what life's about. Hey, this is what happiness is about. Hey, this is what you need to pursue. Hey, this is the way you need to live your life. And I promise you, if you sit there and just try to block it out and block it out and block it out, one day, one of those things are going to come in and it's going to get you. So how do we avoid that? Well, you've got to have a voice that is louder than what the world is saying. And you've got to let that voice be God's voice. And that comes through the scriptures. If God's voice and the truth of God through the Bible is not active in your life, then I'm telling you now, you are a sitting duck for the enemy. You're a soldier going into battle, no armor, no defense, no sword, no weapon. And you're like, I'm going to survive this one. And the enemy is like, this is going to be funny. If you do not have the Bible as a part of your life, if the Bible is not changing and transforming how you think and how you live, then something else is. Simple as that. Simple as that. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. But when you open the Bible, when you allow the Word of God to be a voice, a loud voice, and hopefully the loudest voice in your life, then when false things turn up, you will know that it's false. The saddest thing about churches these days is heresy turns up, it comes in, it sits right next to you, and we have no idea that that's even heresy. And we're like, welcome, welcome, brother. You know, come and join our leadership. Yeah, wow, that's going to that's gonna go down well. If you do not open your Bible, I'm telling you this right now, if you do not open your Bible, you are ultimately cutting off God and his influence into your life. The only way we can effectively fight off the lies of this world and the temptations of this world is to not work out what we don't believe. That's a really big bucket. And some people are like, you know, if we want to fight... You know, if, if, if we want to fight against the Muslims, then we need to read the Quran. We need to know the Quran back to front. And okay, some of us need to do that. But really, it's not about knowing what we don't believe. You just need to know what we do believe. 
You need to be sure on what we do believe so that when anything else turns up, you're like, "Mm, that's outside of what I believe. That's outside of the word of God. But what's tough is a lot of us, our ideas of the Bible are very shallow. God wants to bless you. You know, that's why prosperity theology has worked. God wants to bless you. Everyone goes, yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, it seems like they're saying out of the Bible. You know, God wants you to be rich. Oh, okay, you know, that's part of, the, you know, the blessing. You know, you should demand God to, to bless you or else, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not faithful. Oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense, right? That's how heresy works. That's how cults start. The greatest defense of our faith is the Scriptures. I promise you, I promise you, it's as simple as that. So tonight, it's really simple. Open your Bibles. Open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's a red one in front of you. I know that they don't even belong to me, but you just take one home. I'll, I'll pay for it later. Okay? It's not the best version of the Bible, but, you know, if you need a Bible, I will give you a Bible. If you don't know how to read your Bible, I will read, I will, we will help you read the Bible. There are so many apps. You don't even need a physical book. It's been ages since I've opened the physical Bible because I'm just on my apps. So many Bible reading plans that help you. Hey, just read these two verses today. There's a notification, ding, you wake up, ding, read these two verses. It's as simple as that. But it's only when we do that We know who we are because we know what we believe. I pray that the Bible would be the loudest voice in all of our lives so that we may remain strong in this age where everyone is trying to tell us what is right and wrong. What everyone is trying to tell us is what the truth is, that we would know that the real truth, the absolute truth is God and his word alone. Amen. Let's pray.